Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Today we have an Indiana Environmental Reporter news story about a rollback of pesticide spraying regulations. We also have segment one of a feature written by Jessica Fitzpatrick about the cryosphere. And the third feature for today is an IER story about still mill pollution. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. The Sycamore Land Trust, which manages the 16-acre wooded hillside known as Lake Lemon Woods, is renaming the hillside to Bob Clawwitter Lake Lemons Wood as a dedication to the memory of Robert Clawwitter, a well-known grassroots environmental leader who died in a traffic accident on September 10, 1996. As the founder of the Southern Indiana organization Protect Our Woods, Clawwitter advocated for no logging on federal lands and sustainably protecting privately owned woodlands. He also saw the protection of large tracts of interior forests as the ultimate goal in maintaining deep forest habitat for the myriad species that depend on that ecosystem, such as migratory songbirds. Clawwitter was posthumously honored with the Sagamore of the Wabash Award in 1997 as a testament to his unwavering environmental advocacy. He served as a board member and vice president of the Hoosier Environmental Council. The council honored Clawwitter by renaming its Lifetime Environmental Achievement Award, which recognizes influential environmentalists as the Robert Louis Clawwitter Lifetime Environmental Achievement Award. The Keystone Pipeline, completed in 2010, delivers oil from Alberta, Canada, over 2,000 miles to Steel City, Nebraska. The product transported is the result of extraction of oil from tar sands. It's a very thick crude. The proposed Keystone XL Pipeline is an extension of the original pipeline and would carry 800,000 barrels a day from the Canadian oil sands to the Gulf Coast. Protest against the XL project came from the environmental community and Native Americans. The Fort Belknap Indian community of Montana and the Rosebud Sioux Tribe of South Dakota contend there was no effort to study how the pipeline project through their respective territories would affect their water systems and sacred lands. When President Barack Obama rejected the Keystone XL permit in 2015, he was weeks away from negotiating an international global warming accord in Paris, and he sought to use the move as a symbol of his global leadership on climate change. He argued the pipeline would undercut United States leadership in curbing global reliance on fossil fuels. Trump has wanted to build the XL pipeline since he took office. In March of this year, he signed an order permitting its construction. This has sparked a series of protests. 
The protests were followed by the passage of several anti-protest laws. In South Dakota, for example, the state could sue any individual or organization for riot boosting or encouraging a protest where acts of violence occurred. Individuals could have been criminally or civilly liable even if they did not personally participate in any riot but had directed, advised, or solicited other persons participating in the riot. More recently, in a win for the American Civil Liberties Union, South Dakota agreed not to enforce its Rioting Boosting Act. The latest development is a leak from the Keystone Pipeline at 383,000 gallons of oil. This is actually the second spill in two years. The Nature Conservancy of Canada is urging people to leave fallen leaves on the ground as a favor to the environment instead of raking or blowing them and removing them. Leaves naturally break down and nourish the soil. They contribute to backyard diversity by creating a habitat for native insects, including pollinators, and help from other wildlife, including frogs and toads, to hibernate through the winter. Creating shelter for insects and other small animals provides larger animals, such as birds, with quick snacks in the spring. Fallen leaves can also alleviate climate disruption by breaking down and absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. People who are concerned that fallen leaves might stifle grass growth in the spring can remove the leaves from the front lawn and leave the backyard with a light layer of them. Also, placing piles of leaves around tree roots and in flower beds creates a natural mulch. A new peer-reviewed paper in journal Nature Communications reveals that because of the release of heat-trapping greenhouse gases from human activity, rising sea levels could flood out 300 million people within three decades. Chronic flooding will occur on higher land currently home to that many people. Land on which 200 million people now live could be permanently inundated by the year 2100. Climate Central arrived at the new figures by using an improved global elevation data set that uses machine learning. Those new figures reveal that coastal elevations are significantly lower than previously acknowledged across wide areas. Coastal Asia will bear the brunt of the flooding, and the threat could have major economic and political consequences within the lifetimes of people living today. Sea level rise is one of the best known of climate disruptions, many threats, and results from the melting of ice sheets and glaciers and the expansion of warming seawater. Over the course of this century, global sea levels are expected to rise some two to seven feet. Over 11,000 scientists have issued a dire warning that humanity faces, quote, untold suffering due to the climate crisis, unquote, if societies worldwide don't make drastic changes. The statement was published in the journal Bioscience and was the result of a collaborative effort by dozens of scientists and was endorsed by 11,000 scientists from 150 countries. The drastic changes, the statement urges, include ending population growth, leaving fossil fuels in the ground, halting forest destruction, and greatly decreasing meat consumption. A key goal of the statement is to establish a comprehensive range of what it calls vital sign indicators of the magnitude of the climate emergency instead of considering only carbon emissions and surface temperature rise. Indicators that the scientists say should be observed include tree cover loss, 
energy consumption, fossil fuel subsidies, and annual economic losses from extreme weather events. The scientists say immediate action is warranted because the climate crisis is accelerating faster than expected and is more severe than anticipated, threatening natural ecosystems and humanity's future. They also say most nations' climate plans are, quote, totally inadequate, unquote. According to the New York Times, the Trump administration is expected to roll back Obama-era regulations meant to limit the leaching of heavy metals like arsenic, lead, and mercury into water supplies from coal ash ponds. The Environmental Protection Agency is moving to weaken the 2015 regulation that would have strengthened inspection and monitoring at coal plants. The regulations would have lowered acceptable levels of toxic effluent and required plants to install new technology to protect water supplies from contaminated coal ash. The EPA will relax some of those requirements and exempt a significant number of power plants from any of the requirements, according to people familiar with the Trump administration plan. The move is part of a series of deregulatory efforts by the Trump administration aimed at extending the lives of old, coal-fired power plants that have been shutting down in the face of competition from cheaper natural gas and renewable energy generators. Coal ash was dumped for decades into unlined pits, but it came to the public's attention after spills in North Carolina and Tennessee sent mercury, cadmium, arsenic, and other heavy metals from the ash into water supplies. Environmental groups warned that the regulatory rollback could lead to contaminated drinking water and birth defects, cancer, and stunted brain development in young children. Energy analysts said the administration's latest gambit to bolster the industry would not save the industry from its long decline. Tests show that coal ash contaminates groundwater at 91% of U.S. coal plants. And now we will hear a feature news story on a rollback of pesticide spraying regulations from the Environmental Reporter. A new EPA proposal seeks to remove restrictions for farmers trying to spray pesticides on their crops. But critics say the move could put farmhands and other agricultural workers at risk. Here's IER's Beth Edwards. A proposed update to a federal worker protection rule modifies the area of responsibility for farmers during pesticide application. The proposed change could make it easier for farmers to protect their crops, but could also harm agricultural workers on neighboring land. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is proposing changes to the Agricultural Worker Protection Standard that could modify the pesticide application exclusion zone or the area surrounding the equipment during the pesticide application so it's only applicable and enforceable on a farmer's own property. Right now, farmers have to make sure that no one comes within at least 100 feet from pesticide application equipment during application by air, air blast, smaller than medium spray quality as a fumigant, smoke mist, or fog. A farmer must stop spraying if anyone enters the exclusion zone, even if they are off the farmer's property and cannot resume pesticide application until the zone is clear. Under the new proposal, farmers and state regulators would no longer be responsible for ensuring that people in neighboring properties are clear of an application exclusion zone during spraying. Director of the Indiana Department of Agriculture, Bruce Kettler, told the Indiana Environmental Reporter that the proposed change clarifies and simplifies worker protection rules. In an email, Kettler said that the rule is helpful because farmers cannot legally control the actions of bystanders, not on their property. He said farmers were still expected to enforce the rule, even though they did not own the adjacent property. Kettler said anytime there is clarity around confusion in laws, 
It helps regulators be more effective. While farmers and state officials say the rule would help enforce existing regulations, organizations that represent agricultural workers said the rollback in worker protections will harm farm workers and bystanders. More than 125 entities, including labor organizations, environmental advocacy groups, and religious organizations, submitted a joint comment to the EPA warning of the rollback's negative effects. In a joint statement, the group said that the farm workers have one of the highest rates of chemical exposures among U.S. workers and suffer acute pesticide poisoning every year through exposure and pesticide drift. The group says they are concerned the EPA will weaken critical safeguards meant to protect agricultural workers and others. Current state and federal laws written to protect workers from pesticides are often violated, whether intentionally or not. Federal law mandates that pesticide users must obey pesticide label directions under penalty of criminal prosecution. Many pesticide labels direct users do not apply the product in a way that will come in contact with workers or other persons, either directly or through drift. Since 2006, the state of Indiana has had a law on the books that should have prevented pesticide from drifting outside the bounds of a farmer's application site. The Indiana Pesticide Drift Rule banned pesticide users from applying a pesticide, quote, in a manner that allows it to drift from the target site in sufficient quantity to cause harm to a non-target site, end quote. The rule specifies that harm includes documented deaths, illness, and other detrimental effects. If a farmer or other pesticide user is caught violating the rule, they could face a suspension or revoking of their license, permit, registration, or certification. They could also be issued administrative fines. Even with those rules in place, the Office of Indiana State Chemist, the state agency that oversees all pesticide regulations, reported that agricultural drift complaints have risen since 2008. The annual 10-year average for off-target drift complaints for all pesticides is 110. In 2017 and 2018, the number of complaints more than doubled to 263 and 270, respectively. The public will be able to submit comments on the proposed rule change for 90 days once it's published in the Federal Register. We have posted a link and instructions on our website, theindianaenvironmentalreporter.org. story about the cryosphere. Cryosphere, the frozen ecology. Exploring the frozen areas of our planet and how changes there affect the rest of our environment. Now here's your correspondent, David Lyman. Cryosphere, the frozen ecosystem. In this segment, we'll discuss the cryosphere and its importance and challenges in this age of climate change. We will tell you what the cryosphere is and its function and what is now happening amid the threat of global climate change. We will bring you important statistics about the areas most affected by rising levels of seawater and less and less snowfall and cover. Since 1993, the warming has doubled in the ocean. When the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide, the pH levels fall. Lower than normal pH levels affect how fish and other marine life develop their skeletons and shells. The cryosphere is the frozen part of the Earth system, including ice shells, icebergs, glaciers, ice sheets, sea ice, lake ice, river ice, permafrost, and seasonally frozen ground. The cryosphere plays an important role in the Earth's climate, the cryosphere is currently melting into the ocean, which is also observing roughly 90% of the heat that has been produced by humans as global warming. 
Producing greenhouse gas emissions is one anthropogenic change that the Earth struggles to deal with. Anthropogenic means caused by humans. The global ocean covers 71% of Earth and contains about 97% of the Earth's water. Around 10% of the Earth is covered by snow and ice. This fact is changing as global warming has led to the shrinking of the cryosphere with mass loss from ice sheets and glaciers, reductions in snow cover, and Arctic sea ice. The ocean has warmed unabated since 1970, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This has caused coral reefs to bleach and die with an estimated 15-year recovery period. This is a threat to small island developing nations, SIDS, indigenous Arctic people groups, and people groups in high mountain ranges. Over the last decades, global warming has caused the Arctic June snow covering to decline by 13.4%, plus or minus 5.4% from 1967 to 2018 due to surface temperature increase. In high mountain areas, the depth, extent, and duration of snow has declined especially at lower elevations. Acceleration of ice flow and retreat in Antarctica has the potential to lead to sea level rise within a few centuries. There is uncertainty, however, in these estimations as there are limited observers available to monitor such changes. Sea level changes are not globally uniform as different parts of the sea differ in temperature and are a result of land ice loss in different regions. Extreme wave heights, which contribute to extreme sea level events, coastal erosion and flooding, have increased in the southern and northern Atlantic regions over the period of 1985 to 2018. There is medium confidence in these scientific findings according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In the next segment of Cryosphere, the frozen ecosystem, we will look at temperature increase and oxygen loss in our oceans along with the impacts that has for animals and humans in these affected ecosystems. Cryosphere is a production of EcoReport and WFHB Community Radio Bloomington, Indiana. It is produced and edited by Patrick Callanan, written by Jessica Fitzpatrick, with music by Patrick Callanan. For WFHB's Eco Report, I'm Don Guerra. Now we will listen to our third feature about steel mill pollution. This story is from the Indiana Environmental Reporter. There are 11 integrated steel mills in the U.S. Four of those are right here in Indiana. Emissions from those plants are regulated, but two environmental advocacy groups say the EPA has made a major omission that needs to be corrected now. Here's IER's Beth Edwards. A pair of environmental advocacy groups sued the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to tighten national emission standards for toxic pollutions from steel mills, including some in Indiana that still use an outdated, heavily polluting process. The Indianapolis-based Hoosier Environmental Council and the Sierra Club filed suit to force the agency to set emission limits on two pollutants that are hazardous to human health but were omitted from the EPA's original 2003 rule that regulates emissions from iron and steel manufacturing. Here's Hoosier Environmental Council staff attorney, Kim Friero. Steel mills, not surprisingly, emit a huge amount of hazardous air pollutants. Nationwide, the, the estimates are 227 tons from their smokestacks and another 295 tons per year for what are called fugitive emissions. So they're just sort of uncontrolled emissions that make their way out into the ambient air. 
And those include emissions including metals such as arsenic, chromium, lead, and mercury, inorganic chemicals such as carbonyl sulfide, carbonyl disulfide, hydrogen chloride, and hydrogen cyanide, organic chemicals including benzene, toluene, polycyclic organic matter, and dioxins, which are incredibly dangerous. The 2003 EPA rule called the National Emission Standards for Hazardous Air Pollutants Integrated Iron and Steel Manufacturing Rule placed emission limits on metal hazardous air pollutants, particulate matter, and some vital organic compounds from steel mills. The rule did not regulate or even mention the emissions of a chemical compound in a gas used in steelmaking processes currently only used in Indiana. Carbonyl sulfide and hydrogen chloride, also known as hydrochloric acid, are naturally occurring but have been found to negatively affect human health in large quantities. Both the chemical compound and the gas smell like rotten eggs, but people lose the ability to smell them at high concentrations. The federal government warns that people may falsely believe that the two are no longer present, increasing their exposure risk to air levels that may cause serious health effects. Both can have serious respiratory and neurological effects on people at high concentration levels. The Hoosier Environmental Council said carbonyl sulfide and hydrogen chloride are used in a stage of the steelmaking process that is unique to the mills in Burns Harbor, East Chicago, and Gary. The Indiana steel mills include the only three steel mills nationwide that still operate what are called center plants that are used to burn off impurities from the blast furnace where the the steel is made. And all of the emissions, which include 72 tons per year of the carbonyl sulfide, 12 tons per year of hydrogen chloride, all of that comes from the center mills in Indiana. That accounts for almost 90% of the industry's nationwide total stack emissions. So a huge amount are emitted into the air right here in Indiana. Both substances were acknowledged in a review of the 2013 rule released in August, but were not submitted for regulation. Fierro says this submission has seriously affected the health of Hoosiers and will continue until it's corrected. Indiana, and and specifically Northwest Indiana in the communities of Gary and East Chicago and Burns Harbor, are home to the mills that produce the vast majority of hazardous air pollutants, should raise a really huge red flag for people that this is an environmental injustice issue. These communities are largely poor and minority, and they are clearly suffering an undue burden here that EPA should take seriously and correct. Since 2003, Lake County, Porter County, and several neighboring counties have failed to meet federal hazardous air pollution emission standards several times. That means facilities in those counties have emitted pollutants known or suspected to cause cancer and other serious health effects at levels beyond those permitted by federal law. That could be having a negative effect on the health of the state's second most populous county. Lake County has approximately 484,411 residents, or about half of the 954,670 people living in Marion County, the state's most populous county. Despite the difference in population, Lake County has similar incident numbers for some types of cancer. According to the Indiana State Department of Health Statistics, between 2011 and 2015, Marion County reported 1,857 cases of prostate cancer, while Lake County reported 1,519. In that same period, Marion County reported 1,761 colon and rectal cancer cases, while Lake County reported 1,401 cases. The Hoosier Environmental Council and the Sierra Club lawsuit was filed in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. The court has ordered the EPA to begin responding to the suit by mid-November. 
For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we currently are looking for reporters and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active on South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming local events. The Indiana Audubon Society will host a special Audubon's Night of the Owls in Yellowwood State Forest on Saturday, November 9th, beginning at 7 p.m. You will be working at a banding station where you will learn about Indiana's smallest owl, the Northern Sawwet Owl. Registration is required. Contact B. Bumgardner at indianaaudubon.org to register. Come prepared for the weather and bring drinks and snacks as all activities take place outdoors. Take a guided hike to the Devil's Backbone in Charlestown State Park on Friday, November 8th from 10 a.m. to noon. This is normally a restricted area, so be sure to sign up to visit this limestone outcropping on this three-mile rugged hike. Register by November 7th on the Indiana DNR website. On Saturday, November 9th from 7 to 8 p.m. at Spring Mill State Park, take a fun night hike on a trail five to learn all about the full beaver moon. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. Bring a flashlight and good hiking shoes for this moderate one-mile hike. Brown County State Park will host a program on endangered Brown County on Wednesday, November 13th at 2 p.m. in the Nature Center. Take some time to learn about the endangered creatures of Brown County State Park and what you can do about them. There will be a beginning birding program and hike at Spring Mill State Park on Sunday, November 17th from 8 to 9.30 a.m. Meet the naturalist at the Lakeview Activity Center in the program room to hear about some of Indiana's birds that stick around through winter. After the program, you will hike on a five-mile around the lake. This is a one-mile rugged hike, so dress accordingly. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's local news stories were produced by the Indiana Environmental Report and Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. 
David Lyman and Linda Green wrote and edited the script. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.